0: Welcome back to another episode of The Occasionalist, Matt Pagel here, once again flying this ship solo as we continue on into, deeper into Movie May with our Battlefield Cinema series. Uh, this time we are going to do a little Battlefield breakdown as we look at nine different battles from movies, um, obviously this is Movie May, but I threw in a, as a bonus, I threw in a couple of TV battles because they are cinema, they are cinematic and cinema worthy. Um, but we're going to break down these battles uh in some cases don't worry we're not going to this isn't going to be like a four-hour podcast going into the into uh extreme detail but um i am going to go through and all these will have um links in the in the show notes and everything else uh, so you can um so you can download these or you know watch along if you want um and you know you kind of see what i'm seeing or maybe you disagree with what i'm seeing um but again, I picked nine different battle scenes that we're going to go through and break down. Uh, the original, this is a, a disintegration. Originally, we did a we did a scene from Peacemaker where we kind of broke down the dialogue and the way the, the certain looks, the way it was cut, that kind of stuff. We're going to be doing kind of a very similar thing. Uh, maybe not in as much detail, again, because I don't want this podcast to end up being like four hours long. Uh, so... We'll get into quite as much detail, but I will get into a great bit of detail about certain things. So that'll be this uh, this version of disintegration or battlefield breakdown. So uh, we'll start out with another lightning round question, another very easy one for you. Uh, what is your favorite battle sequence? Very easy, very straightforward. Whatever the reason is, go ahead and leave it in the. If you're listening to this uh, on social media, if you're listening to this Instagram or whatever. Uh, just go ahead and leave that in the uh, in the comments. And obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, you can leave it uh, in our, you can leave it, there's comment sections all over that you can leave uh, your answer to for that one. So again, what is your favorite battle sequence? What movie is it from? Maybe it's not from a movie, maybe it's from a TV show, um, you know, just uh, let us know. So before I get into kind of breaking things down, I did want to give everyone like a sense of what I'm looking for and what I think makes a good battle scene. Um, and I think there's are some of these are fairly universal, but I'll, I'll give, I'll give like, obviously as we go through each one, I'll, I'll kind of point out where they either hit or miss in terms of these sort of criteria. Um, so there's three things in, there's three things in very particular that for me make a good battle scene. And they are, excuse me, <clears throat> I'll just go through them. I'll give you all three and I'll go through them one at a time. So, They are scale, scope, and point of view. Those three things have to all hit the right way for it to be a good battle scene for me. Uh, So, what is scale? Scale, I need to have an idea of what the full battle looks like and where our protagonists fit inside of this battle. So, when you're talking about something that is, uh, you know, you're you're talking about like a large scale World War I battle in the trenches or whatever, I need to get some kind of picture of everything that's going on above the trenches. that's going on the firing line that's going on in, in uh, no man's land on the, on the opposing side, whatever. It could be something as quick as like an overhead visual showing, um, you know, again, just to stick with the world war one sort of metaphor or example here, I need to see like the two lines that we are, um, that we're going to be either, you know, which maybe we visit both, maybe we only visit one line, whatever, but I need to see those two lines, um, and like sort of the 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 general physical, the geographic region where this is taking place I need to see I need to see things like fortifications. I need to see um you know if, if we're doing like a naval battle or a, an aerial battle or something, I need to see all of these bombers and fighter planes in formation. I need to see uh, f- you know for if we're, if we're doing something like uh i haven't I haven't seen the movie, but I'd seen some clips of midway. we're doing the Battle of Midway, right? I need to see all of those destroyers, all of the aircraft carriers, all the plane. I need to see all that information. So we have like a complete view or a complete feeling for the scale of everything. Um, so that's what I need. I need, I need the biggest picture possible to kind of have everything fit in mentally for me. And then we're going to, and then the next thing is scope a little bit different from scale. And I, I bet if there's any economists out there listening to this, you probably understand the difference between scale and scope. Um, It is impossible, at least in good war movies and in good battle sequences, it's impossible to focus on the entire battle. So I need, so then, you know, after I get the idea of how big everything is, then we need to figure out what exactly it is that we're going to be showing in detail. So if it is the Battle of the Midway... And we do see like the you know the the ship formations and everything and all the aircraft carrier and all the thousands of planes that would be well hundreds of planes that would be involved in this sort of battle. Fine, show it, but then we need to scale. We need to we need to uh, tighten the scope and show. Maybe it's one fighter squadron. Maybe it's one uh, bomber that's being escorted. Right. Like we need to kind of we need to shrink everything down so it's a little bit more manageable that we can. So we're so we're watching things uh, from. So we don't have to watch too much, I should say. Nothing wrong with taking peeks at other things that are going on. And really, again, we'll get to this a little bit later. Um, really good battle sequences do show us other things that are happening around or around the um, uh, the focus of the battle scene. to sort of give, again, give an idea of the scale, right? Like at some points, if battle scenes, especially when they're very long, if you do focus too much or too completely on the scope, um, whatever the and, and whatever we're uh, you know our, our squadron is, is looking at, then you can kind of lose everything else that's going around. So every now and then you do you do need to take a pick or a peek around to just kind of show that like yeah. Also by the way shit is fucked over here, shit is fucked over there, shit is fucked over there, blah, you know so on and so forth. So that is scope, right? We need to figure out what is what is the scope of everything that we're going to be showing. And then lastly is the point of view the POV. Again these and by the way these are all. These are all different, I promise you. The point of view needs to be that the battle is, we need to see the battle from one set of eyes, or in the case, a lot of times in the case of a war movie, one, um, one, ex, one shared experience, right? So if, again, if we are talking about um, like an advancing army and uh, going trench to, you know, uh, trying to break the lines of the trenches and, and they're trying to get, the French are trying to get over to the German side or whatever. We need to then focus on like the one squad and the things that they're seeing. We need to have the dialogue happen between, you know, let's say it's like six guys or whatever. We need to have that dialogue, the, the interactions, the things that are happening around them. It needs to be seen through that squad's eyes. Or if it is one singular person, um, you know, if it's an ancient battle and we're talking about, um, you know, the, the leader of of, uh, of some, uh, I don't know, some uh, Roman uh, Roman legion right, like, and we're just focusing on the, what the leader's responsibility is, the, the general's responsibility, that it needs to be through his eyes. Um, everything that's happening has to be from their perspective. Um, without a point of view, uh, you can, you can kind of get lost in everything. And it kind of feels like the battle sequences kind of don't really have a goal if we're not following someone through it and we're not seeing what they're seeing and we're not getting their experience. So we need that point of view. So just to rewind it back real quick. We need scale. We got to know how big this battle is, and we got to see, you know, we, how big the battle is. How um, I should say, I should say, how big the battle is in comparison to the people that we're going to be following. We need a, a firm definition of what the scope is. Um, so, within that scale, what part of the battle are we seeing? Are, are we going to be seeing just this, you know, just one advancing, you know, one piece of this army advancing? Uh, are we going to be watching, um, you know, one person, whatever it is? We just need a, a we just need an idea of how this is going to get shrunk down inside of the larger battle, and then the POV. We need to have. I mean, you can think of POV is the same way as like a narrative, right? In a story, if there is no narrative, the story is very strange. It's just like we're not following anyone's point of view, and some of the things then become kind of meaningless. So we need a point of view be it an individual's point of view, or like I said, like in in the case of a war movie, you need a squad's point of view, whatever it is, maybe it's just a two-man team, we need their point of view and how things are breaking down around them, right? So scale, scope, point of view, those things are all very necessary to have a good battle scene. And then I'll I'll throw in something as a bonus here, um, that especially when it comes to especially when it comes to like made up wars Um, you know, if we're not chronicling like a real, real world event and we're making up some kind of future war, we're fighting aliens or some shit like that, or we're talking about ancient battle and we want to kind of showcase some of the interesting ways that, uh, that combat happened prior to um, you know, prior to the advent of gunpowder and, and bullets and guns and things. Then we, then I need to see, see something interesting or do something interesting, right? Like, Show or do something interesting. Maybe it's an interesting sort of uh, battle formation that um, you know that uh, the way that like we think about it, especially when you think about ancient battles, I think probably a lot of people, especially in the West, your I your brain immediately kind of thinks of like knights, swords, things like that. Well, maybe you know maybe we're doing a maybe we're doing a movie about like Eastern combat in like medieval times, and they had you know the Chinese or. In Korea, they had some kind of different formation. The Japanese had some kind of different battle formation, or something, or some different battle tactic. Like show that, show that interesting kind of thing that they do that we're not accustomed to, or do something, or show something that's like really unique, like a, a weapon, a, you know, a piece of weaponry. Um, in fact, we'll we'll talk about something here in a second that that was pretty co- that was very interesting and pretty cool. Don't think it actually exists, but show me something very interesting again especially in the, in the case of something like ancient battle they had a lot of very interesting weaponry that was really set to you know to accentuate soldiers at the time um, things like and obviously like armor and stuff like that but you know there were you know things like the longbow were made uh, in response to armor right those were like the snipers of the day so stuff like that i, I want to see I I want you to show me something like that. And again, if we're talking about something like a future war, make some just fucking bizarre weaponry that like does you know, that it's you know, like I, I don't I don't wanna to get too too far into this detail into details with this, but make unique weaponry that just does something visually interesting. Right? If you're just gonna make up an enemy and you're gonna make up a war, make up the weaponry. Who gives a shit? Just do something interesting. Um, not too unlike all a lot of the weaponry in something like Starship Troopers where there's a lot of interesting stuff that we did to uh that we not we that the uh that the fascists did to combat the bugs. So so that's a little bonus there. You know, show or do something interesting or cool. So let's uh let's jump into it then. The first thing, well, before we jump into it, I'll give you the, the the you know, the headline here. So we're going to be talking about ancient battle and the three movies that we're going to cover are um excuse me, to scroll down here, are The Messenger from 1999 directed by Luc Besson. Um. Again, the full again the full name for this movie is uh, "The Messenger: The Story Story of Joan of Arc." Uh, we're going to talk about Gladiator from 2000, directed by Ridley Scott, and then we're going to be talking about 300 from 2006, directed by Zack Snyder. All right, and then we're going to get into real life battles, and I kind of say that with quotes, and you'll see why. Uh, but real life battles: A Bridge Too Far. Uh, from 1977, directed by Richard Attenborough, covering the Battle of Arnhem, uh, in, or I should say, covering Operation Market Garden, uh, in particular, the Battle of Arnhem. Um, and we're going to do Apocalypse Now from 1979, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, and that's why it gets the quote-unquote real life, because um, that does not cover a real-life battle, but I'll explain why I'm including it anyway. And then, of course, we had to, we have to talk about it at least somewhat. Uh, Saving Private Ryan, nineteen ninety eight, directed by Steven Spielberg, um, and I will spoiler alert: go ahead and just call that the, uh, the it's the granddaddy of of battle scenes of war scenes. I, I every every movie since then has strived to get something like this, and in various ways, some movies have been successful, and but mostly they've been unsuccessful to capture this same thing. And then uh, I have bonus battles here. These are just some that I like for various reasons um and you know none of them are for the most part they still follow the sort of the same rules that i just set up but some uh, in a couple cases there's just other stuff that i enjoyed uh very thoroughly uh from these so our first bonus battle will be as i mentioned last episode it'll be black sails from the tv show black sails i believe it's the last episode of the first season i think it's the season one finale uh where the uh our intrepid pirates take on a spanish man of war uh, and then our next bonus battle uh, from Game of Thrones had to do it. Battle of the Bastards. Um, one, of the, one of the best episodes, one of the best action episodes, I should say, uh, of the series for, for certain. And then rounding it out with another movie, uh, Children of Men from 2006, directed by Alfonso Cuaron. Uh, one of the most unique, certainly one of the most unique battle sequences uh, in recent cinema history. So that's what we're going to be doing uh, in this next segment. All right, so let's get into it. Uh, we'll start with our ancient battles, and we'll start with The Messenger. Um, so I'm not, and just to be clear, I'm not going to go minute by minute, second by second, to kind of give you the blow by blow of what's going on. I'm going to give you more of the overall feelings of the that I got from the, from the scene and point out some specifics, um, you know, point out some specifics. But again, it's not going to be a minute by minute breakdown. So The Messenger from 1999, directed by Luc Besson, um, It's I don't remember exactly what what this I can't I should have I should have put this down in the notes and I didn't because I don't remember exactly which battle this is supposed to be that Joan of Arc and her um, and her loyalists were fighting um, against the well I guess they're all French i was gonna say against the French they're all French Um, but it's it's a raid it's towards I want to say it's towards the first third of the movie. Um there's a there's a couple other i always conflate this because I haven't seen this whole movie in a while I've just seen like the scenes um I always conflate when this I always conflate when this battle happens because it does it ends with her getting shot with an arrow in the chest and I always feel like that's towards the end of the movie but I think this is actually at the beginning uh more towards the beginning but anyway it's this raid it's her it's her uh it's her armies and and this raid on a fort and the the general problem this I, I wanted to start off with this movie because it kind of violates all of the things that I just kind of laid out that make a good battle scene um, but it does hit some other things so this raid is supposed to feel very big but it doesn't um, you know it's I, I want to say I want to say historically this battle it wasn't like a huge huge battle but we are talking about a few thousand people were involved in this raid on this fort and it just I don't know if it's because... It, it feels like the fort and the camps, everything looks too much like a set and not enough like something that exists in real life. Like, I know that, like, in some cases, um, you know, if you were shooting, like, a period piece that involved, like, a castle or a fort or something, as long as you weren't... As long as they're not, like, the production isn't damaging it or, you know, doing stunts on it and stuff, you can film. Like, you you can film on it and do whatever on it. Um, a lot of... But, you know, like, the... <laughs> The English kind of frown upon you, like, firing things at, at their, you know, thousand-year-old castles, basically. So, and same with the French. I'm sure they, they don't like that as well either. Um, but just for some reason, it for some reason, and maybe it's just this movie is now, what, 24 years old? Maybe it's just the age of this movie. Maybe this looked better in 1999. I, I don't recall it looking better. I always recall it kind of, it just feels like it's very obviously a set. And it doesn't feel like it's a real thing that these soldiers are fighting on and trying to evade invade like there's a as we open like we have joan of arc rallying uh played by mila jovovich um we have her rallying the troops to kind of attack this this fort and as they're attacking it again it just feels like it even though there's like a thousand people on their side or whatever it just feels like it's smaller than that and then when they are like trying to um you know they have like their siege tower not siege tower siege ladders um, and when they're trying to scale this wall. It does. It just feels like it's a wall that they built, and not the wall of the fort. If that makes sense. Um, so it just it just kind of feels. I don't, I don't want. I don't want to call it cheap. It just feels like it's a little bit incomplete, and it feels like, it, it feels like in the like. Luke Besson is a very competent action thriller director, um, but it just doesn't feel like this is his forte. Because I feel like if this was in the hands of of as we'll talk about in the next in our next selection of gladiator if this was in the hands of someone like ridley scott i feel like the attention to that sort of i'm not even gonna call it a detail the attention to something that important wouldn't have been skipped um and i don't know if it was skipped necessarily but you can see it like when they're when they're scaling that wall it just doesn't seem like it's a real thing so uh, so it kind of misses there for me but we're also trying to show the whole of jones forces Hitting the hitting the fort and the wall all at once, and this feels like again this is a problem of scale and scope. We have this battle has zero scope. We're just kind of showing all kinds of stuff that's happening, and there's a lot of sort of side long shots that show her entire army trying to get up this wall, and we're we're seeing too much. Um, we're seeing too much in for in various ways. We're seeing too much because there's just like too much to focus on, so that makes it a little bit harder to see actually what's going on. But if you do focus on it. You, you'll you see extras that are just sort of nonsensically like waving their weapons around. Like they're just standing in a in a crowd yelling and waving their weapons. They're not really doing anything, trying to advance on the wall or whatever. And that's like a big problem when you are showing a whole lot of something. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot that like you, there's a lot you can't control when you have like several hundred people in frame at once. You can't control what is going on at the back end of, of that. Um, so it so again it's too much in terms of like your eyes trying to follow it and then when you do actually follow it and you do kind of focus on like just watch this scene and we'll just see people in the background just kind of standing like on on the on the bridge uh, of you know, over this moat just kind of like waving an axe back and forth they're not even moving advancing doing anything um it's just it's too much like you you just can't do that um it just doesn't look right and similarly because we don't because we kind of violate that scale and the scope. There's also like no one is really at the center of this scene. Like it starts, it starts with Joan of Arc kind of rallying the troops and she gets her banner and she gives a speech and she kind of rides the men into battle. And then she just stops and kind of lets all of these people that we, for the most part, other than a couple, there's a couple like uh, what Desmond Harrington's character is a name I can't remember off the top of my head and like Vincent Cassell's character. Um, you know, we, We see them, but they are clearly sort of witnessing the battle from, it shouldn't say even witnessing, they're just sort of outside what's going on. So no one is really at the center of the battle. Um, It's certainly not Joan of Arc. Uh, We're just watching people that we're unaware of just get killed, basically, or fall off, really, not even that many deaths. Uh, We're just seeing people just kind of get pushed back down into a pit, and then other people just kind of bang against a wall or try to climb up. Um, So... We, even when we do get some deaths, and which I'm going to get to the stuff I like, I promise. So even when we do see some deaths, it just doesn't feel very consequential. It's really not until the very end of the battle when Joan of Arc is actually shot at point blank range by an archer that the scene finally has like a clear point of view. And it's a really, it's, it's a really great final shot. It's a great shot too. I'll, I'll get to it here in a second. But it, it does sort of, to it does sort of to me sort of reduce it does sort of reduce the battle to something that almost feels more like it's from one of those like one of the better budget sort of um discovery channel or net you know national geographic channel documentaries about you know what they would basically if if this was on nat geo and it was about Joan of Arc i would say wow this is a really well <laughs> this is a really well done um documentary series but because this was like a big budget movie it just doesn't feel it just doesn't meet that sort of criteria that I want. Um, So it just, it fails on multiple levels. Um, And like I said, I think Luc Besson has done a lot of, a lot of movies that I really enjoy. Um, And he's definitely a case of trying to separate the art from the artist. If you're unaware, you can go look up a lot of the creepy stuff around Luc Besson. But he's a very competent action director. Um, But it's very clear that that this isn't his type of action. Um, It's just not his forte, not something that like, and I I feel very convinced. I feel very sure that he has never done anything like this, uh, since you know since he did the messenger. So, just not his not his style, not his jam. Basically, now there were some things I liked. So even though we didn't really hit the first three things, we did get some bonus stuff. Um, there are these very clever uh, boulder shoots that the uh, that the the one side of the French were using, where. Um, at the, at the top of the at the top of the walls of the fort, they would uh, open up these like portholes and they'd drop these rounded stones down and they would come down a chute and fly out and hit anyone um, standing in the path of these boulders. Almost like, almost like ancient cannons, basically, but they were just at the base of the wall, had like a curved path, and they would shoot these big-ass boulders out. And there's a bunch of times where dudes get just fucking flattened by these boulders flying down. Um, it's very cool like a very very clever scene i have no idea if that's a real thing kind of seems like it would be um but uh very clever very fun uh and it actually uh, and i'll give i'll I'll give them credit here for this they didn't overuse it it was used about three i think two two different guys get hit and then uh two yeah two two different guys get hit with them and they like just absolutely crushed um but then like it's you know the third time the, uh, the you know they wise up and get out of the way and it kind of just hits you know just hits the one side of the moat and kicks up a bunch of dust and knocks some people over or whatever. So they didn't overuse it. That could have been one of those things that got overused quickly, but they didn't overuse it. Um, But there was something else that was very cool that I don't think they used enough. They had this, um, I don't know what else to call it, but I'll just call it the head sweeper. It was like this sort of, um, I don't know, I guess essentially like a medieval fan, but it was, had like a spiked, um, like several spiked, um, uh, what are they called? Maces at the end. And they had some guys kind of cranking it, so it spun, and it decapitates uh, one of the one of the Frenchmen uh, trying to get up over the wall. It wasn't used enough, and it, like it just seemed like it was such a a minimal use kind of thing. Like it feels like it's one of those things. Like I want to see this thing cranked up into you know cranked up and got you know moving, and then like I want to see the thing slide across the whole wall and like hit a bunch of people, you know, decapitate some people, maim some people, knock people off or whatever. It just, it seems like, it just seems like a clever idea that they didn't use it. Excuse me, that they didn't use enough. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, it, it just feels like, man, if you're going to go there, and you're going to show like someone getting decapitated with a really weird uh, device that may or may not have existed. Why not do it a couple times, right? Um, but Again, a very imperfect sort of battle scene. But the final shot is great. It almost feels like this whole thing was for the exact final shot of the scene where Junivar catches an arrow from point-blank range right in her chest. And she very much like a, um, you know, someone who said she was receiving messages from God, um, hence the name of the movie, The Messenger. um, She does fall in a very uh, angelic sort of pose. You know, she gets shot at the top of the ladder and then falls back into her men you know, they all catch her or whatever. And she falls very dramatically. And it's a great shot. Like truly is a great shot. It almost feels like this whole thing was, almost feel like this whole thing was a reverse engineered from the idea to have that shot. And it was like, how, how do we get her there? And that's how you get her there. But all in all, this is a very, um, like I said, if this was, if this was something that was on TV, um, you know, in more recent years, I think that we would kind of go, Oh, that was pretty good. Like this, this show did a pretty good job um but i think that i think that this i think this particular battle falls short even of like even by like early game of thrones standards so um so yeah it just doesn't quite just doesn't quite get there for me it's a it's a c minus um and now we're in a c minus and on this list uh it's definitely the worst in the class so that's the messenger from 1999 all right, now let's get into something I really like: Gladiator from the year 2000, directed by Ridley Scott. In particular, I'm actually I'm going to start with the opening battle sequence, um, in which the uh, the Roman legionaries are um, up or I guess down in down over in, I don't know, uh, but they're in uh, they're in Germania. They don't, uh, you know, Germania back then would have been any number of places. Um, it does. It sounds kind of like the head. Um, the head German, uh, German tribesman, Germanic tribesmen possibly was, uh, French. Um, not entirely sure. It could have been, they could have been in Prague. <laughs> they could have been in Germany. They could have been France. They could have been in Poland. Um, for, for all I know, uh, G- G- the Germanic tribes were, you know, think when you think of that sort of portion of Europe, it could have been a big portion of Europe. Um, so they're not like very specific other than to call it Germania, which was a very large chunk of Europe at that point in time. Um. But it is the opening battle. The opening battle scene immediately sets our scale uh, pretty wonderfully. Uh, you know, we get that sort of visual um, of all the Romans. You know, of the Roman encampment and how much space it's taking up. Um, you know, in this uh, in this forest in the you know in the Germanic tribes uh, in the Germanic tribes region, um, we see <clears throat> we see their encampments, how many troops there are, the different lines. We are immediately seeing how many people are going to be involved in this battle in one way or another. Um, so that's 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 a fantastic way to just sort of open the scene, right? Um, and obviously we know right away this battle scene is going to be through the eyes of Maximus. Um, you know, with his his flashbacks, uh, you know, to, or I should say his, his flash to this vision that kind of um, lasts through, you know, he carries throughout the, the course of this film. So we know right away it's through the eyes of Maximus. He gets to give the speeches and everything else. And we know that he's obviously, you know, he is the general of this uh of this particular portion of the Roman legions. So right away, I guess we, we we get um we know whose point of view this is all happening through. Um and obviously there's some necessary like I said before, there's some necessary peaks outside of the point of view to kinda to get again sort of remind us of the scale of everything that's going on. So we do get um some you know, some uh sort of bird's eye view shots and everything going down, which are awesome to see all the you know the flaming arrows and the fire pots and everything else going into the tree line. It's pretty cool, um, and you know, and we also, you know, we also see it briefly from the point of view of Marcus Aurelius, which kind of gives us sort of another sort of idea that um, one of those visual storytelling things where we get the idea that like Marcus Aurelius is in line in the same, <clears throat> excuse me in line with Maximus's thinking. And like, I apologize, there had a had a rough cough. But uh, we're seeing it through the eyes briefly uh, of Marcus Aurelius. He's kind of taking in the sort of the the spectacle of everything that's going on, and we also kind of know that he is, in fact, uh, completely in alignment with Maximus by sort of um, making his the second POV, um, albeit brief. Um, And then, which is obviously confirmed later when they have their conversation uh, in their in their encampment. Um, But anyway, this scene does a really great job. It stays as big as possible while still shrinking the battle down, so we can see how Maximus is winning his part of the battle you know we obviously get to see the um the different lines of the Roman legionaries um, you know we have the firing line with all the archers uh we have the the front line soldiers uh you know the the the, the actual sword and shield guys they're gonna go through and then obviously we get the uh Maximus' is part of the uh, the cavalry you know that's what he's leading and so we get these sort of um we shrink it down but keep it i know i'm being repetitive but we shrink it down but we keep it big right like we get to the to the the sort of a really good midpoint where we can see that there's a lot of people involved in this but it doesn't feel too big and we can still focus on maximus's part in this battle as he uh you know as he cuts through uh germanic you know germanica uh, tribesmen after germanic tribesmen um and i it's, it's a bunch of things that i love about this scene uh, i love the accuracy on the romans um you know their their banners their uniforms their weaponry their tactics all of this stuff is very very in line and very correct for uh what what uh, the roman empire would have been doing at this point in time um it's just it's just dead on it's just very very you know it's something that would never slip the mind of ridley scott basically is to make sure all of this stuff is as close to perfect as it can get obviously some of the tactics and stuff um you know they break down a little bit when we want to do stuff that's a little bit more cinematic right like you wouldn't have as much freelancing and freestyling on the part of a general um going right into the um right into the teeth of the enemy necessarily um, unless it was unavoidable but you know that doesn't make for good that doesn't make for a good film right so we need to we you know again we need to break some things out of necessity right but otherwise the the accuracy uh, on the romans is very top notch I can't say much about the the Germanic tribesmen, Um, you know, again, they're not like specifying which tribe it's supposed to be, um, which people, you know, where, where again, specifically in Germania, they're supposed to be. So it's hard to say anything about them. And so maybe that sort of characterization is a little bit thin, other than to say that they're just like sort of, you know, wild people from the woods. Um, But it's fine. I really love the way that this scene feels like it's continuously accelerating, we kind of get the slow wind up, you know. We get um, all the, leg- you know, all the legions are the the. the this legion is uh, kind of in formation, waiting uh, for you know for the messenger to return uh, with uh, you know what the Germanic people have to say about potentially you know laying down arms and surrendering. And uh, obviously, the uh, they send back the messenger without his head. Don't kill the messenger. That's what happens. Um, they send the messenger back in his horse without his head. So it does feel like we're we're kind of revving up to the inevitable showdown. And it's just like this, not out of control, but just this continuous acceleration until we get to the part where Maximus actually goes, um, goes one-on-one one with some tribesmen. So I, I, it's just a good, good pacing in this scene. I think that's, that's something else that, uh, you could tack that on as another bonus thing. I think these battle scenes, when they're paced really well, um, also, it's also something that you notice, um, as a, as a positive as well. Now, I did not love the fact that the Germanic tribesmen just kind of stood there, while the Romans were just firing endlessly, firing arrows and fire pots at them through catapults. Um, Not sure why they would have just stood there and let themselves get caught on fire, get impaled by scorpions. Scorpions are the big, um, the giant arrows. Um, You know that's that's what they took down. uh, That's what they took down Daenerys' dragons in uh, Game of Thrones with. Uh, Basically, it's just a giant bolt. Um, and, and I'm not really sure why you would just sort of stand there while this huge fucking arrow is, you know, coming to impale you, but, uh, they did, uh, I guess they're, cause they're very, very brave dramatic tribesmen, but, um, certainly they wouldn't just stand there and take it on the chin like that. So something that I really didn't particularly like, but once, once the, once the actual battle gets completely rolling, then it's, it's a big kind of who cares. Um, let you know, they get they get to the fighting, the fighting's good it's a, it's a top-notch scene, a very excellent way to kick off this movie, and I say that because like it's a, it's just a prelude. There are I wanted to talk about this one more so than the other scenes because this is our only this is our I mean even though there's so much battle in this movie, this is our only war battle scene. Everything else is staged war obviously, a gladiatorial combat, which is just very very different even though they are they are kind of going for um even though the the gladiatorial combat was in fact uh, just sort of like as a way to sort of you could call it an early an early war movie is essentially what the uh, what a lot of the gladiatorial combat was um, restaging battles that the Romans had won previously um, and, and and showcasing the, the, the might of the Roman Empire for uh, everyone to see. Uh, so. <clears throat> so, again, this is the only actual war battle in the entire movie, in a a movie that is filled with people getting their heads cut off and stuff. So uh, just, again, a little interesting little tidbit there, but also I think a good sort of warm-up for all the action, the better action, actually, that is to come in that movie. All right, now let's hop into 300 from 2006, directed by Zack Snyder. Um, I'm talking about the opening battle scene here, where... um, where the, the, the first encounter at the hot gates, uh, with the, with the Persians. Um, and boy, I, this is again, scale and scope are perfectly balanced. We get an idea of the scale of everything almost right away. Right. Um, even, you know, even in that, even in the, in the, the very, just even in the very distinct visual style that is, you know, to kind of somewhat mimic the, uh, the graphic novels, um, the graphic novel, I think this is a singular novel for this one, um, even though we're kind of mimicking, mimicking that style, we still get a really good idea of the scale and the scope, right? So when we have, we open with the the captain and uh, Leonidas, I feel like I know that guy, the captain, has a name, but he calls him captain so much, I can't really remember it. Um, but, uh, so Leonidas and his number two uh, captain, or his number one, I should say, the captain, they're having the discussion about what comes next, and, you know, the the rocks begin to shake, and um, you know, he thinks it's an earthquake. Leonidas kind of goes, no, this is, they're coming for us. So right away you get the, you, you know, that these, that this, uh, relatively speaking small, uh, army is going to be fighting something that is fighting an army that's coming at them with so many, uh, with, with such a high number that they literally shake the ground that they're walking on. Um, but yet we still effectively shrink the battle down. Once we actually get to the fighting, which seems almost like <laughs> as I wrote this down, it was almost like I had the epiphany, B- but not, you know, not, not really, but I, I had this like moment. I'm just like, oh, right. Which was the entire point of the Spartans fighting in the hot gates in the first place. We're <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're going to bottleneck this massive army essentially into what, what amounts to a single file line and we'll just fight them one at a time. Like, duh, of course, they have to, of course, Zack Snyder shrinks the battle down because guess what? The Spartans shrunk the battle down as well. Um, But, but realistically speaking, what I mean is like, we, we do immediately, we get the, we get that feeling of the overwhelming odds. And, but then we are able to still focus on our main Spartans, on Leonidas, on the captain, whatever his name is, on Dilios, on, I can't remember what Michael Fassbender's name is. But we do get to focus on our main Spartans then um, once we get down, once we show the threat and, you know, the number, you know, the the, the vast numbers that they have. You could even, you know, even at the end of this particular, this first part of the battle, when we see all the, you know, the the uh, the Persian archers blotting out the sun with their arrows. Just another reminder of the scale and then how the scale gets narrowed down to the scope with Fassbender and one of the other soldiers laughing about when Fassbender said they would fight in the shade. So it's a really excellent within seconds going from large scale to small scope. Um, excellent excellent it's very technically very technically well done and very well done within the you know the narrative of the story. Um, I know Zack Snyder gets people have very intense feelings about Zack Snyder one way or the other but I don't think that you can he's it reminds me of this way in in michael of michael bay a little bit very polarizing as well but you can't say that his movies aren't technically well done and aren't visually well done you yeah, you just you cannot say that um but anyway just to sort of move on to the idea of like the pov this is leonidas's scene from the jump um you know he's at the front he's the one getting that that awesome slow mo you know when he breaks when they break uh, formation and he's just cutting Persian after Persian, knocking their limbs off, knocking them down, getting the hero poses, um, you know, looking more muscular than is actually humanly possible. It's Leonidas' scene from the jump, right? Um, You know, he even gets to deliver all the great uh, laconicisms, the Molin Labe, you know, come and take them. Um, This is where they fight. This is where they die. That kind of stuff. Like, he, um, he gets to deliver all those lines. This is Leonidas' scene from the jump. Um, so there is no... We're not wavering on the point of view whatsoever. We're seeing everything through through the way that Leonidas is seeing things. And, you know, I, you can extend that to all the Spartans. They're all on the same page. But this is definitely a Leonidas's... This is Leonidas's battle, his war, his... You know, it's... And we obviously get this internalized a little bit um, with his story as, like, a boy or whatever. But this is Leonidas's scene from the jump, for sure. And I... Here's what I really love about this. It, it's... This is one of those things... Um, you know, when it comes to movies and TV, any visual media show, don't tell. Um, it's so important that the Spartans start the battle. They, we, we are told repeatedly about like the Spartan attitude, you know, like we have that scene where the, uh, where the Spartans meet the Arcadians and it's the, you know, how many, you know, what's your profession? And the, the Arcadians are potters and blacksmiths and, uh, you know, whatever else I can't remember what the other guy is. Um, and what are the Spartans? They're soldiers, right? And it's so critical that they're the ones who essentially start this battle when they, when the Persians give them sort of one last chance to hey, put your weapons down. We don't have to fight. What do they do? They fucking spear this guy from long range and, and tell him to go fuck off um, because they want com- they want combat. Um, and it's actually it's really interesting. The I won't get too far into this, but the history of like the real life Leonidas, he was he was a, a quite a bit not old but for um for you know a military leader he would have been a little bit older i want to say like mid 50s when uh he leads the spartans to uh thermopylae and he had gone a long time pretty much his entire life without seeing any sort of major conflict and certainly it has gone he had gone his entire life as the leader of the spartans uh without seeing any conflict so they were and this isn't baked into the film necessarily, but it is the idea of these characters of of this characterization of these of this particular culture. Good God, they want you to come fight them. They don't even if they even if there was sort of a surrender that might have been uh, very you know might have been very agreeable to them. They probably would still want to fight because they haven't fought in a long time. Um, so it's really important that they start the battle too. And I think. I, I, I mentioned previously that there were, you know, there's some people that like dislike this movie and I 100% understand why I, I, if you don't like a movie, you don't like a movie and I understand why this one can be a little bit polarizing sometimes. Um, you know, some of the, some people say, some people have like issues with um, some of like the sort of the, it feels like a lot of the shit is like really out, out of left field. Like the, the you know, the, the magic stuff, the, the creatures that they're fighting. But I, I will say sort of in defense, that keep in mind that we're hearing about essentially we are hearing about this from Dilios, the one eye, the guy who loses his eye, uh, in, in the battle. Um, I can't remember the actor's name off the top of my head, but um, and Dilios is a storyteller, like he, you know, in fact, that's why he gets sent back. He's like, because Leonidas knows you have the gift of Gab, you are so convincing with your words, I need you to go back and tell them about everything that happened here. Because you, we need you to be the messenger to the Spartan Senate, who, is, who didn't approve the sending of troops because, uh, you know, they were on the take from the Persians or whatever, but um, who didn't approve the, the sending of troops. And then obviously uh, Greece at large, which at that point, you know, Greece doesn't, I mean, Greece doesn't really become a country until much more modern times. And back then it was very, you know, it was split up in different city states. So they weren't a united front against was a much larger force at that point in time. So, where I am going with this, Dilios is telling a tall tale. This whole story about all the heroic things that the Spartans did, and obviously to some degree it is all true, but in Dilios is spreading. He is. How should I say this? He is this 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 tale of the three hundred Spartans is propaganda to rally Sparta and the rest of Greece to fight Xerxes, the creatures that they fought. The the sun being blotted out by the arrows, the, you know, whatever pick, take your pick of all the things that happened in this. Did they happen? Yes. And no, in Dilio's telling of the tale, they happened. Um, but it is, it is his version of propaganda to sort of get the, get the nation, if you will, ready for war um, when they were not previously ready, even though they, well, I guess they, they are kind of ready for war at all point at any point in time, but they weren't ready to commit full scale to a war. Uh, but they needed they needed that sort of they needed someone with a silver tongue to sort of go and and tell the tale and make it so it seemed like it, it seemed like at the other end was this unstoppable force and at the one end the the Spartans using all their all their might were able to repel it you know imagine if we if we all band together and do it now so yeah I, um, I don't know I'm getting a little too far into that one but that's that is a that's the reading that I've always had in this film that it is a tall tale. And you're supposed to take it that way. And it is a little bit of, it's a piece of propaganda, but that's how you're supposed to take it. All right, now, so let's get into some real-life battles. We're going to start off with uh, 1977's A Bridge Too Far, as I mentioned before, directed by Richard Attenborough. Um, this is, again, this tells the tale of uh, the Battle of Arnhem. Uh, in From September 1944, um, the Battle of Arnhem was part of Operation Market Garden in the Netherlands. Uh, it was the mission to... Um, it's a mission to do. the Nazis had already occupied the Netherlands, and it was a mission to sort of take bridges, to kind of um, simultaneously retake the Netherlands, but also box them into certain areas by making making it hard to get in and out of uh, certain advantageous, um, or I should say, key roadways and things. And ultimately, Operation Market Garden is a failure for the Allied forces. I I wanted to pick this because I. I wanted to pick this because it's, it's actually a little bit like, um, it's, we're kind of, we're kind of flowing in a natural way from 300 to this movie, which has a lot of parallels. Um, it had a, has a lot of real life parallels. Um, you know, it's, it, well, we'll get to that. So let's, let's get to the movie part of this before I get into like the actual history or before I get too far into any more history stuff of it. But in the movie, love the, I love the opening shot, um, the, the opening shot of this I sh- I'm sorry I should say the 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 battle that we're picking here is uh, it's a German offensive um, on the uh, on the Arnhem bridge where they're trying to get we're trying to kind of re- come in and retake um, some of the uh, allies uh, gains at this point in time so it's the first time that the the Germans go completely on the offensive um, again this will be uh, this particular clip will be will be in the notes um, but the opening shot of of what what is going to become the battle? Right, like we see the Nazis getting into their tanks and their armored vehicles, or trucks, and they're getting ready to come over the uh, the Arnhem bridge. Um, but then we we see from the and we'll get to this as we see from the point of view of the the literal point of view of the Allied forces uh, lying in wait for them. We see them sort of we see this uh, the head Nazi you know the the colonel or general or whoever it was I think it's colonel um on his armored vehicle kind of leading the uh leading the convoy it's this opening shot where they're like because of the curve of the the slight curve of the bridge it looks like the nazis are almost like ascending up into screen as their as their trucks and tanks roll slowly um down the down the road and then up onto the bridge and it's just this really great shot of our enemies coming slowly into sight um and so that there is no there is no sort of messing around about the point of view. It's not told from one singular soldier's, at least the scene is not told from one singular soldier's point of view, but it is, we are all on the side of the allies who are hiding along the, you know, along the sides of the bridge, hiding in buildings, uh, ready to pick off and basically just obliterate the, uh, the Nazis that they come across, come across the Arnhem bridge. Um, but that, that opening shot is fantastic. And this this scene has a few shortcomings, but I'll forgive them for some of the great visuals that are in the scene. Um, again, and it's, it's a, like I said, this is a very Spartan-esque sort of strategy. We're going to bottleneck the aggressor and the superior army in a very tight spot. Um, once they're on this bridge, they have no place to go. You can't like turn off of it. You can't back up. Um, so they they lure them onto the bridge, and that's when the attack begins. And it is tense, and it is loud, and it is fast. It is. It's rockets. It's mostly bullets, obviously, but it's just sustained fire on these on these armored vehicles. Um, just for I, you know, the whole battles the whole battle scene is probably about four minutes, uh, maybe a little bit less than that. And that's that does reflect the reality of like these skirmishes. They don't really last that long. Once you've taken out the once you have shot people enough, they don't get back up. And once you've blown enough vehicles up, they don't continue on. So these skirmishes don't last very long, but it was this very, it's this very intense sort of, because we are getting that slow start to it. And then once the shooting starts, it doesn't stop until this particular, um, until this particular Nazi squad is completely obliterated. Um, They're just scattered all over this bridge, vehicles on fire. By today's standards, it's fairly bloodless. Um, I, I mean, uh, you see a couple of allies get shot. Um, you obviously, you see uh, many of the Nazis get shot or whatever. But you know, no one's body parts aren't flying off. No one's coming out of vehicles on fire. Um, there's not like guts lying all over the roadway. It's definitely a little bit bloodless by um, today's standards. And really, even again, this is 1977. We're just a couple of years away from some war movies that like st- really have some. <laughs> Horrific uh, scenes in them in terms of in terms of the gore you know the gore content and even prior to this there there were war movies that were very very bloody comparatively, um, but it's still it's still a really cool scene it's really great um, again like the intensity of it the speed of it it just feels it's just like a perfect length um, it's got great practical stunts great stunt work great great work on the the vehicles blowing up and crashing um, and it's really a good it's just one of those. It's just one of the sort of if you're to take a slice of this movie and you are like, "Well, what's the what is the battle generally like?" This is just a perfect slice of like what a lot of this movie is like. There's some other battles that are a little bit longer, more complicated, but this is like a really great example of all the other stuff that you see in the movie. This is a little bit of everything. Um so it's great this is a great this is a great introduction. First off, this movie's great. Um but this is a um this is a really excellent movie to kind of jump into something um, if you're if you're unaware of what Operation Market Garden is, this is actually a pretty good movie to get uh, to get a little bit of info on it. Um, this is and this is a movie I again like. I think the action is just a little bit off here. It's a few degrees off from where I from where I like it. My war movies. Um, this is the kind of movie like I I would love to see this remade now without really too many like without too many without trying to sort of make it more than what it is. I would like to see this sort of scene with more. Modern stunt work with more modern effects. It'd probably be it, it. It's already a really good scene. It'd probably be fucking bananas. Um, with with a more modern touch on it. But, you know, it's don't think that's going to happen. But uh, a bridge too far. Very very good. A very solid B, B to B minus level sort of uh battle scene for sure. All right, just a quick heads up here before we continue on with this segment. Um, I so we are gonna we are talking about apocalypse now. And at some point in time, my brain just completely went on vacation while I was doing a, a making a quick comparison uh, between. I, I opened up with a little comparison between Apocalypse Now and Full Metal Jacket, and in that in the course of that comparison, my brain completely flipped Francis Ford Coppola and uh, and Stanley Kubrick. So for like several minutes, I just. Uh, have now I've just replaced Stanley Kubrick. It uh, uh, placed Stanley Kubrick as the director of Apocalypse now, and even like evoke invoke some of his other uh, filmography uh, to open this up. So it, like it doesn't it it doesn't make sense. And I truly really didn't even notice it until uh, well after I had uh, already like recorded and started putting stuff together. So this is just sort of the uh, the little uh, pre I don't know uh, the little opening uh, warning that. It, I chopped a little bit of this conversation out. Nothing major, truly nothing major was missed because it was just like a comparison. Uh, but we do get into the rest of the battle stuff. But you will hear um, you will hear a couple of different points where I just slap on Francis Ford Coppola's name in place of Stanley Kubrick's because I literally just kept going with it like that. So apologies, but uh, that's why you'll hear just a very random, uh, my voice very randomly kind of insert and save Francis Ford Coppola. So even though the scene is not real, you know, this isn't a real battle, this, this isn't the, you know, the My Lai Massacre, this isn't um, part of the Tet Offensive or something like that, it still invokes, evokes the insanity of war, right? It still invokes the insanity of war in general. It evokes the insanity of what was going on in, in Vietnam. And even though, again, not a real scene, you feel like this is something that really happened. Um, just because of how well made this, this particular scene is. And I probably should mention that I am talking about the, I'm not sure why I just glossed over that, but I'm talking about the ride of the Valkyries, uh, sequence, uh, with, uh, Colonel Kilgore or Captain, Captain, Colonel, whatever, Kilgore, um, it, where we're attacking the, uh, the VC, and, uh, with, uh, with helicopters blaring Wagner, um, It's just... This is an unbelievable... This is an unbelievable tone setter. It gives us such a really interesting sort of... This is where I think we are sort of playing with the sense of scale and scope a little bit. Um, Because again... Francis Ford Coppola. The the rules don't necessarily mean anything to... Francis Ford Coppola. As long as he gets the feeling that he wants out of it. And so... The... I'll, I'll i'll get to i'll get to more details i'll get a little few more details in here in a second but the the tone and the, the the scale and the tone are really set as we get these like kind of long shots of this helicopter squadron kind of approaching in the distance the um the you know the the vietnam village I can't remember exactly where they are but so we get to see it as you know they're approaching and like we're seeing it from high up with them so it gives you this idea of just like this, you know, how they're flying into this area, but then like we get this uh, switch point of view where um, the we're at the you know at the school where the children are lined up or whatever or outside playing, and then we don't see them at first, but we hear them because they're blasting Wagner over the speakers. Um, so we hear Wagner kind of just permeate everything around them. which as it just gets closer and closer, and we get that little bit of the Doppler effect where the Sound is distorted, but it's getting louder and louder and louder. So it gives you this sense of scale—that a uh, kind of a skewed sense of scale—that this enormous, almost mythical force is coming, even though it's just I don't know what—probably ten, twelve helicopters or whatever, something like that. I mean, you know, attack it only um, like ten or twelve, like attack helicopters, or whatever, in formation, um, and a few, and a few carrying, you know, a few uh, carrier helicopters as well, troop troop helicopters as well, but it does give us this sort of sense of everything being huge, but then we're really, really good for the most part at sticking with Kilgore and Willard, um, in their helicopter and everything is kind of, that's, that is our scope there, right? Like we get to peek out and see them, see things getting blown up around them. But that is, that is sort of where we're staying for the most part is in that particular helicopter. But because of that, we have a very unmistakable, Oh, excuse me. I skipped over a thought here real quick because um, I, I kind of mentioned the tone and everything, but this so the scale and the tone and everything. I forgot to mention that with the tone. This is just such a great. This is such a great tone-setting scene, because we get to see just how surreal this version of Vietnam is. How dehumanized every single person, really, at this point, except for Willard, um, is. And Willard is on his way to becoming dehumanized, um, well on his way, but he still has you know pieces of pieces of him left uh, before, uh, obviously before he gets to Kurtz. Um, but it this sets such a such a tone for the surreal nature of the movie, how dehumanized we are by war, and that tone just increases, just notch by notch as this movie continues on, um, as Willard goes farther and farther upriver, upriver. He very symbolically is also going farther and farther into madness, um, so it's such a good tone setter that like, hey, you think this shit's crazy? Just wait until you keep going upriver. Um, but uh, <clears throat> anyway, this has a very unmistakable point of view. This is all through Kilgore's eyes. We are fully seeing the scene from his eyes, but we are also fully experiencing the scene from his head. We are in his brain. How are we in his, How do we know that we're in his brain? Right away, as soon as he as soon as he requests that we blast this Wagner over some speakers on our helicopter, that is essentially the soundtrack. That is the soundtrack in Kilgore's head to what to what he is experiencing as he swoops in in various villages and just destroys them. Right, like every part of this is through Kilgore's eyes. Um, You know, the the disaster, the madness. This is all, each, and really you could say that about pretty much every one of these sort of pit stops for Willard. Um, they're all kind of in someone's, we're all in someone else's sort of POV, in someone else's brain, basically. And this one is through Kilgore's eyes, in his mind, It's we are very firmly entrenched in there. And it is a, I would say, I mean, it's a frightening place, because he doesn't really, again, he's completely dehumanized, doesn't really think about things... He doesn't think about the the way he doesn't think about anything the way that Willard is thinking about things at this point in time yet, and yet it sort of just makes sense that this person would be thinking like this in order to survive. That's how Kilgore has to think to survive this war. Um, but man, it is a incredible opening scene. Obviously, we get the great some of the best visuals um, from any war movie ever, and we obviously get Robert Duvall as Kilgore to deliver the great uh, you know. Uh, do you smell that? That's napalm. Nothing else in the world smells like it. We get that whole uh, speech, which is much longer than people probably remember, um, but it's just such an incredible scene. Uh, it's this is a so where uh, where Bridge Too Far is probably a B minus to a B. Uh, Apocalypse Now we are already we are already firmly in the A range right now. Uh, so if Apocalypse Now is an A, you can only and I you can only go up from here. So that means Saving Private Ryan is an A plus. Um, Saving Private Ryan from 1998, directed by Steven Spielberg, of course. And we, of course, are talking about the opening battle sequence. Um, Maybe the best battle sequence ever put on film. And it is impossible to sort of pick out just one portion of this battle. It's almost 25 minutes long. And it's not... I'm going to use this word a couple of different times, but... It's over 20 minutes long. I want to say it's 24, 2440 or something like that. Um, yet it is not gratuitous. It, it's not too long. It is. It somehow is the perfect length because we need to stay in the scene for as long as we can to show how hard, how difficult this, this very first part of the mission is how hard it was to move essentially a few hundred yards from off a boat and onto, and onto ground. How difficult this was, because of how stacked how stacked the odds already were against them, and then obviously the um the artillery from the uh from the battleships never reached its intended destination to give them some craters and so they could like had a little bit more cover so it's like we we are starting the movie starts from a place where the odds are already extraordinarily long, and because these odds are long, we have to see we have to show how painstaking it is for our soldiers to move through, um, you know, this extraordinarily dangerous uh, battlefield. Uh, You know, it's the length. It's one of those weird things where like the length, because it is so long, it makes every second feel dangerous. Cause it just feels like you, you are in this scene for a long time, but it just, it feels like, Oh my God, when is this ever going to end for them? And for us, for the viewer, when is it going to end? And we get to, you know, in every war movie, you, you have a scene, you have a sequence, you have your battle sequence, then you have time to catch your breath, and it feels like because this scene is so long, when are we going to be able to catch our breath? You know, and like you can't, they can't. There is no catching your breath. You either you either you either stay with it, or you know, in, in their case, they either stay with it or they die. Um, and we have to stick with it along with them. We we have to we have to t- wait to take a breath for a long time. So, in terms of like the scale and the scope and the POV, Spielberg does such a great job of right off the rip, showing us the beach the landing craft like especially like you know obviously after we get past the the opening cemetery scene um you know we see the uh, we see the beach we see the uh those i can't remember those like jack shaped uh blockades that you know to keep ships and things from uh, from landing um we see all, we see that we see the all the the line of the landing ships coming towards uh the green sector of omaha beach and it's just like immediately like we Spielberg is showing us the size and scale of this battlefield where all of these people are going to fucking die just like without, you know, even before a single shot is fired on film, just by what he's showing us the, the boat fulls of people, especially the ones, you know, obviously we're, we're sticking with captain Miller, captain Miller, that's our POV obviously, but we're sticking with captain Miller and his landing craft. But, you know, he looks over either side and you see multiple, you know, a couple dozen on either side of him, and it's just like they're not showing those people for a reason because they're meat. They are dead. They are done. And so everything before a single shot is even fired is just the signal that, like, there are going to be a lot of dead people here in just a few minutes, Um, which gives you a great, great sort of understanding of the scale of things. Um, And then, obviously, the scope, we we get it right away as we... Um, right before uh, people start getting mowed down, we are back in the ships. We're back in the landing craft, uh, and that is our that is our our visual signal that like this is how we're going to be following this. We're going to follow these people out of this, and then we're going to be following them up the beach to their ultimate destination. And I, as I said before, we're following uh, Tom Hanks's uh, Captain Miller is our POV. By the way, extra kudos to hold the gunfire as long as they possibly could. So like even though, and especially even though years later now, 25 years later, um, you know, people who hasn't seen Saving Private Ryan, or at least is familiar with this scene, um, even now, you still get sort of like breathless waiting. It just feels like, it's really not that long, but it feels like it's such a long time for everything to start. And we get, man, it's just so great. Um, You get that sort of, you know the 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 guy uh, piloting the boat gives like the thirty second warning or whatever. They're all getting ready, and then we see. You know, we don't actually see who's doing it. We just see the hands of someone operating the the the, the crank to lower the lower the fronts of the of the landing craft, open it up. You know, make the bridge so they can go running out. And there's no bullets, nothing is flying. We just hear the cranking and see the turning of the wheel, and then it drops, and then boom, everything hits at once. It is just unbelievable that again, like just having watched it very, very recently, um, it is just like, I was sitting there knowing, I know this scene back and forth up and down, left and right. And I was still just sort of like anxiously waiting for those, for the, uh, for the front panel on those ships to drop and for everyone just to get chewed up. Uh, it's unbelievable. It's almost as if Steven Spielberg is a very good filmmaker or something. Um, so again, obviously we're following Captain Miller around, which does a really great job of, uh, you know, you, I mean, I guess you could argue the whole movie is Captain Miller's, uh, POV, obviously until we realize, um, that the, uh, it, it, or I should say the whole movie feels like it's Captain Miller's POV until we realize that the, um, that the end, that the old man is actually Private Ryan, but the, in between everything else is Captain Miller's POV, which does give it a sense of. Because of what we know about like this of this particular character, there is no mistaking who is on the side of right and wrong. Obviously, we're fighting Nazis, but meaning that like there's no when something happens and and Miller is on the side of you know we actually I'm kind of fucking up what I, my thought here, but we know where Miller stands, so we know where everyone else stands. These are just people, you know, his he, he and his squad, uh, Caparzo and. Um, Oh, gosh, I'm forgetting Giovanni Ribisi's character. Like, they are all just men. Um, you know, Tom Sizemore's character, they're all just men um, and and fair men who are going to do this job because they are honorable. And we know that because of, like, what we know about Captain Miller. But because we're also in with, we're seeing this from Captain Miller's point of view, we get to see these, we get to see, like, you know, and we know that he's struggling with um, with PTSD so we get that sort of like little tick to it. You know, that's like what we get the, the when he first makes landing on the beach and uh, he's just sort of kind of slow motion lost in the chaos, looking around at everything else. It does sort of afford us those moments. That's how that is the device. that Excuse me. That's the device that we're going to see everything else, you know, around us to, to remind us of the scale of things, you know, um, Miller's having his moment, you know, he looks to one side, there's a, a man looking for his arm. There's a, a kid lying in the, on the beach with his guts spilled out, he looks farther down the beach. There are landing craft and and all the soldiers completely engulfed in flames. So like, no, it doesn't really matter which way he looks. Something terrible is happening to give us a reminder of this scale that they are. Again, they are a small, <laughs> excuse me, a very small part of this war. But like, the odds are their are so stacked against them. They're a very small part of this war, but a very important part of this war. And that's just how the how Steven Spielberg is reminding us of all this, right? Now, like I said, you don't really you don't get a chance to breathe for almost a half hour into this movie, um, until they've captured this this uh, this sector. So it's just it's just an intense study in how to and how to prolong something without making it again feel gratuitous. Uh, how to be how to do something so technically well. I mean, again, battle scenes are complicated, and the fact that that this one goes on for so long, you know, behind the scenes how much. How many takes this took? How much film was spent on this thing? The the different, you know, all of the um, the makeup, uh, the special. I mean, just how much work went into this for how long it is. This is like a technical achievement, and despite the length, despite how very grisly some of it is, it just never feels gratuitous. Every death feels consequential, even the characters that we don't know. Right? Like there's there's the like the kid with his gut spilled out, crying for his mother. There's the the guy looking for his arm there's the um I, I think it's yeah there's a there's a guy that grabs miller i can't i think he's named actually too at one point in time before they get off the craft he grabs miller and he asks him a question and just takes it right to the chest and it's just all of these or the or takes it right to the chest is the guy who bullet deflects off his helmet he takes off his helmet to look at it uh, I, I think it's tom sizemore says you lucky son of a bitch and then the next one catches him right in the forehead all of these like these things seem gratuitous, but they're not. They're just they're there to remind us. I mean obviously it, this whole thing is to remind us of like the technical achievement. But all of the the emotional the emotional feeling that you get of knowing that like you know, you are all these all of our main characters and all these people were that close. They were that close to dying. All of this is very necessary and not gratuitous at all. So, I, it's Saving Private Ryan. This is an A+. plus. I don't think anything, it's hard to say has anything gotten as close to this. Um, I, I mean, I would say, obviously, no. But I, I don't think a lot of movies since this have ever really tried to pull off the same thing. So, you know, and it's probably the smarter way to go about it. I know there have been big battle sequences and stuff. And in the, in, in the era where everything is CGI, and we've done it more and more but man there's just nothing Spielberg hired like 40 different stunt actors that were amputees um for the people that were losing limbs and stuff in this in this battle sequence that's something that just would not happen today we would just cgi limbs coming off and we would see c- we would cgi that you know everything else the flames the blood everything else would be just added in post basically um so no one's attempted it and i don't think anyone would attempt anything like this um in terms of the in terms of making this a a in terms of using practical effects to get the same thing i don't think anyone would attempt it so this is this is our a plus scene and there is nothing truly there's nothing like this at all all right to wrap up here we'll get to our bonus battles uh we'll start with our tv shows here first um i'll start with black sails the the season 1 finale um where in our our pirates uh from the walrus and uh an in another ship, the the ranger uh, encounter and try to take down a vastly superior Spanish man-of-war, uh, a Spanish war galleon. Um, basically, like, the difference, just to sort of give you, like, a kind of an understanding of the difference, like, a pirate ship, you know, they're, they had cannons and things like that. Oh, excuse me. They had cannons and things like that, but they were, they're not naval warships. But what they were trying to do, they're smaller, they're faster, they have enough weaponry to sort of make life difficult for, um, you know, for boats that are moving um, moving valuable goods and things, right? Pirates aren't taking on battleships in war because they would always lose. Um, so, like, the difference would be, the difference would be like a, imagine the pirate ship is a, um, uh, you know, some kind of armored vehicle, like an MRAP. Uh, or something that has some, re- has some weaponry has some armor and protection and the Spanish man of war is a nuclear weapon. <laughs> um, uh, comparatively, um, it is, it is big, it is mean, and it just does not give a fuck. So this, uh, this final scene here is between two pirate ships in the Spanish man of war and we get this great, I love this. This is a battle scene with a ticking clock, um, I won't get into the, the exact story details, but we have uh, John Silver. Yes, that John Silver, Long John Silver. Um, this is this show is a combination of real people and fake people. Um, Long John Silver being one of those fake people. Um, kind of forces the crew of the Walrus to take on, like they were originally just going to cut and run um, from the Spanish, but uh, he fires a cannon shot that misses, but catches the attention of the Spanish. So we are now. It's basically it's do or die. You either get the cannons ready and start firing at them, or you are done. And we get this ticking clock because the Spanish. So, in addition to guns on the side, to cannons on the side, ships also had them in the front and rear, just not as many. Obviously, you don't have as much space. So we once their their shot misses, the Spanish return a volley from behind, and then the ship starts to slowly turn. Takes a long time to turn those ships around. Um, so that's our ticking clock the the walrus and the ranger the ship on the other side of the of the spanish ship if i'm painting this picture correctly they have until this spanish man of war comes about or turns its side and points all its guns at them and it is a great it is a great race to inevitability right we're just they are shooting their asses off trying to reload and hit this ship as many times as they can this ship is three times their size very heavily um you know the the sides are significantly stronger than their sides, um. Obvi- and obviously they're completely outgunned. So we're watching them desperately load cannon after cannon, hitting this thing over and over again, and uh, and it's finally we we get to see it through uh, Captain Flint's eyes. Uh, the is our main character. This is where the you know we get the POV. We're seeing it through Captain Flint's eyes as the man of war. This is such a great visual. The man of war comes completely around. And as soon as the moment that they have every gun trained on the on the Walrus and the Ranger, we see through uh, Flint's got like a spyglass. He's looking, you know, they're probably like a mile, not quite a mile, probably like a half mile away. And he's looking at this Spanish ship through the spyglass. And all at once you see probably at least 60 different cannon doors, the little shutters, all open up on the side. And it's just this extended volley of cannon fire hitting the hitting both ships over and over and over again um non without stop just can just shot after shot after shot hitting them um smoke everywhere and their ships are getting absolutely torn to shreds it's unbelievable so these the way that they built the ships for the show they were kind of like functional ships Um, basically they were like really elaborate floating sets but the way that they make these, the way that they destroyed this set—that that is the, the the ship that we've been following around—the way that they destroyed this set and the stunts and all of the practical effects destroying this thing, fucking incredible. This is an A plus TV battle scene. There, not that there's really many other shows, you know, since before like this since. But there is there is no other show has ever done a naval battle like this. Uh, like this show did on the regular. And this was one of the best ones. It was incredible. It's not, the scene is, you know, it's long enough. It's not super long. But like once the, it's just such a great moment. Like once that ship turns, you're just kind of like, well, you know, the, the ticking clock that was just set, it has run out and we will see you later. And it's a great, it is a, <laughs> it's an awesome scene. And I highly, highly recommend this show. It's a great show. That is Black Sail season one finale where they tangle with the Spanish Man of War. How about we stick with TV here and we get to another great show of that era. Um, You know, despite its rocky ending, to say the least, uh, Game of Thrones. We got to talk about Battle of the Bastards. Um, This was at that point in time where Game of Thrones could literally do no wrong. And Battle of the Bastards was a a really great example of that continued excellence um, in terms of the... In terms of the combat, in terms of the stuff that we, you know, every, every year it seemed like Game of Thrones had something that, you know, to put it in quotes, something we had never seen before on TV. And Battle of the Bastards was an extension of that as well. This is a, such a great battle scene. Um, it was, it, you know, at, up to that point in time, like nothing we had seen on TV before. Um, we really weren't, even some expensive shows that had action in them, weren't trying to hit things on this scale. Um, and yet Game of Thrones did time after time, after time, um, usually, usually without fail. Um, so this was, you know, this was in, in, at that point in time where Game of Thrones could do no wrong. Uh, the Battle of the Bastards maybe, maybe gives us one of the best gifts of all time or gifs, depending on how you pronounce it with, uh, with Jon Snow, you know, pulling his sword, um, and, you know, pulling his sword as the approaching Bolton army is riding right at him. And it's, you know, become shorthand for a number of things, but it is, it is also a reminder that once upon a time, Benioff and Weiss were absolute masters of this sort of visual storytelling where just, just a few seconds of this scene, just a few seconds of this particular scene where John is drawing his, drawing his sword as the Bolton army is bearing down on him. It just, it tells us so much john without faith without even wavering or flinching is pulling that sword out and just readying for the inevitable but he's going to go down swinging because that's who Jon snow is he's noble and a little bit stupid um but definitely a lot noble and it's just they they even even up to the end benioff and weiss were good with good at a lot of that kind of stuff but through you know the through the especially the first like five six seasons they there were just always moments like that where again you know show don't tell, and that is a Jon Snow show don't tell moment. Um, in the face of stupid stupid odds that you put yourself into, he doesn't back down. Um, but he pulls that sword and says, "Bring it the fuck on!" And obviously we get into obviously then we get into the 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 battle. Which another fun thing about this this whole little um, that little you know the sword drawing part. This is where scale, scope, and POV all collide at once. We are in John's, we're in John's POV, and we can just see the absolute insanity of him standing there with literally hundreds of cavalry coming at him, and behind that, hundreds of cavalry, thousands more soldiers, thousands of archers. It is just like, it's like almost like he's standing there at the foot of a tidal wave, right? Like, you know, just like sort out. Like what are you gonna do to that? What, like what? Do you, what is the end game here? So we get that sort of scale, and then it gets immediately shrunk back down to the scope that we're gonna follow. Jon Snow and obviously uh, uh, Tormund and some of our other wildlings. And I want to say uh, I want to say Halfhand is there as well. And then it gets scaled back down so we can follow our main troop of soldiers through this battle, which is just it's awesome. It's such a good battle. Um, we you know the 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 near death of Jon Snow. Um, even though we kind of assume he's going to survive, it, it still isn't guaranteed. Again, because of the because it's Game of Thrones, um, it isn't guaranteed. And when he is getting crushed under that pile of people, um, and then gets pulled out, you know, last minute, it's very reminiscent of that shot uh, in Joan of Arc where she falls into her soldiers. Um, same kind of idea where he's getting pulled out, and he's just sort of in this mass of humanity. It, incredible, incredible scene. Incredible shot, especially there from from over top. Uh, it's just so well done. I believe I feel like I feel like this episode is a Miguel Sapochnik episode, but I'm not 100 sure. I should have looked that up. Um, but he was always kind of the go to guy for these like larger scale battle things, and Miguel Sapochnik has all does a great job with these handling these the handling the actual technical work of these things, but also making sure that everything visually just sort of it just sort of sings is the way I'll put it. It just, uh, it's just so fucking great. So one of the, one of the interesting things in terms of like, this is a very bonus show, you know, this is a very bonus show me something interesting. And this is, um, this is, so like the big pile of bodies that Jon Snow almost gets crushed under. And actually they get surrounded by this would have been an actual strategy war an actual battle, ancient battle strategy um, was to essentially, Use the mounting dead as a wall. You're either like, generally speaking, you want to trap someone with that wall, or I guess you could use it to sort of shield yourself. Not like you're picking up bodies and like placing them, but you want to drive, um, you want to drive your opponent to an area and then sort of literally use their dead or incapacitated injured bodies as sort of shielding um, to force, to force the rest of that army into a certain position. So it's, it's an actual strategy. Um, the, where it kind of gets, again, this is one of those things that they, this is for cinematic and TV purposes that they're kind of doing it the way they did it, because it's very unlikely this would have happened in a massive open field. There's nothing for you to initially to have driven that enemy towards to sort of create that kind of, um, that kind of situation. So when it, when you have a big open field, you're unlikely to have it. You need somewhere like like Thermopylae. You need something that are that kind of already exists as like a natural sort of barrier. And then you're going to drive people into it to create like an extension of it. Um, or like, you know, maybe you want to like, you need like a river, right? To, like you don't want to like run your armored soldiers into a river. So they'll avoid that. So you would use that as like a boundary uh, to sort of then kind of try to kill people there and create, create a body pile essentially to then begin, begin um, using that to sort of wedge and drive your opponent apart. Um, so it's a real thing. It's just the way that they kind of showed it just unlikely to happen. But I did love how we go from this huge battle down to uh, John and uh, John and Ramsey essentially fighting hand-to-hand. You know, as the... As the one thing that they've always gotten right in Game of Thrones... They always got right in Game of Thrones was the way... The, the physical toll of battle, the way it, like it looked like... Man, it looks like it's hard to swing a sword because it is. But also, like, the... Just how like, what's the word? Like, I I think a lot of these swords and shield epic kind of stories, where especially we have knights and things like that. It's like the combat is very, um, you know, we got a lot of people like flashy sword work and whatever else. the The reality is, yes, obviously you want to try to use your sword to kill people um, if you're a knight, but but the reality is, at some point in time, there's a lot of pushing and shoving. And punching and biting and trying to strangle your opponent and trying to, you know, crush them in a giant pile of bodies, like trying to trying to smash someone with your shield and just crush them with it. Um, ancient battle was fucking gross. Once you once once the the elegance of swordplay, if you will, kind of got thrown by the side, it was vicious. Um, it's probably actually probably best embodied um, in Game of Thrones, at least with the fight between Brian of Tarth and the Hound, when they have their they have their battle. And, you know, it starts off with their they're doing swordplay. and then it just devolves into them beating each other fucking senseless until um until the hound shatters his leg. Right? Like it it just devolves into them biting and scratching, throwing each other around, punching each other, headbutting each other. That's what would have happened. Um and it's I, I do appreciate that this show didn't try to make it seem like, you know, didn't, didn't stray away from the reality of what ancient combat would have been like. All right, and lastly, we will wrap up this particular um, episode with Children of Men from 2006, directed by Alfonso Cuaron, and very specifically talking about the final battle sequence that leads to uh, the end of the movie and a miracle ceasefire. Um, Children of Men, this whole movie, is a technical achievement. Uh, truly the the mastery of filmmaking cannot be understated in this movie. I'm not saying it's like the greatest movie ever made, but in terms of in terms of what they were able to accomplish with long takes it's it's truly incredible. This is Alfonso Cuarón is a great director and this is one of those sort of um you know this is I don't want to say like a masterpiece necessarily, but this is just sort of what can be done when someone is really on their game and really has a vision, they they execute it perfectly. Children of Men is a astounding technical achievement. Um, so, like I said, this movie is very renowned. I remember, I remember seeing it uh, in a film class. Um, a, you know, and the focus was the long takes, um, and basically, like a long take is kind of what it sounds like. It's a scene that just continues without, um, you know, without the scene breaking, without, um, you know, a character slides in a frame. And it's clear that like we had you know, we had to change POV um, to show this character come into frame or something. Everything we are seeing the same. We have the same uh, set point of view, and you know that point of view might move around. And in this case, I'll get into some of the difficulties of what I'm about to talk about here. But you know that POV might move around a little bit. But it's a continuous. Everything is happening in from that continuous POV, which is very very difficult for any movie let alone a movie with a, a very intricate battle sequence battle sequences battle scenes on their own are very difficult now imagine doing it if everything had to happen on time and it had to happen in a very particular sequence and there was no way to hide it and that's the that's where like this tactical wizardry from Children of Men comes in there is a this exponentially difficult thing to pull off not only got pulled off but it looks it's so fanta- it's just so unique and so fantastic that I will literally, in, in years from now in my old age, I will probably revisit this movie and just go, man, <laughs> like I can't believe that they actually did this, um, that someone actually pulled it off this way. We're talking about six uninterrupted minutes that follows um, Clive Owen's character, Theo, and I don't remember the actress, but I believe her name is Key, uh, as... They are, and it's actually kind of interesting because they are not combatants in this whatsoever. They are just avoiding. Um, they're avoiding two different forces. They're avoiding a guerrilla faction that is trying to kill Theo and take Key and her baby, and they're trying to avoid the fascist British military regime that is basically just trying to kill everybody. And we are following them as they go. F- oh, it's also urban combat. Urban combat, which is again much more difficult than sort of setting things in like a big open space. Right. Um, and I'll get to, to, I'll get to that part there here in a second, but six un- uninterrupted minutes as we follow Theo and K and key moving through this uh, war. Ter- I'm, God, I'm pretty sure they're they are in Britain and it starts in Britain. I'm pretty sure they are still in, uh, they're still in Britain at this point in time. It's like a hyper dystopian future. Um, I don't remember if they're in London or I think they're in a smaller city, but any point doesn't really matter. But we're six under under, uninterrupted minutes of following Theo and Key as they avoid the guerrillas, as they move from building to building, as the guerrillas engage with the fascist military, as the fascist as they encounter civilians kind of caught up in this um, caught up uh, between the two sides uh, in in a heavy firefight. There are tanks on the street. There are vehicles on the street. Stuff is, buildings are getting blown up. Vehicles are getting blown up. It's just, it is, I don't want to say like nonstop combat, but it's continuous. This Again, it's a long take. So the movement from, from station to station during this combat scene is continuous. And it's just, it's amazing how flawlessly this works and how they had to time everything out and how they had to put everything together just in the right way to get this without stuff getting wonky or things not looking right. It's just, it's so difficult. I can't, I just, I can't, I was one of those things I would love to love to know what this whole filming of this final scene was like. Um, So again, like, you know, in terms of scale and scope, obviously the POV is following uh, uh, Clive Owen, uh, Clive Owen around. That's the POV. But in terms of the scale and scope, I, I feel like we are, we're sort of we we're sticking with the scope. Obviously, we're we're following at street level. We're following a couple people around, um, but in terms of the scale, I feel like another brilliant thing is the way they kind of flipped and inverted it. Um, so because we're doing urban combat, like in the streets of like a you know burned out city that's a that's a war zone. Um, inherently, it doesn't feel that big, but I think that again, this is something that works to the advantage of of the scene. Because it doesn't feel big, it feels and because it feels very small. It feels like our protagonists are rats stuck in a maze. It doesn't matter where they go. On one side are the one. On one side is the military trying to kill basically anyone on the streets. On the other side uh, are the guerrillas who are looking for them, and they have to maneuver in the spaces available in between them, as things are being blown up around them, as buildings are being hit with tank fire, as people are dying left and right it so the scale it feels so small but in a way again that sort of benefits it it makes it feel like everything is right on top of them so that inversion of the scale is just so fucking brilliant in a movie that has a lot of brilliant stuff in it um so that is you know in terms of it's it's in its own way while while saving private ryan is the a plus is the a plus no one does has done it better kind of your general uh battle scene this final battle scene and really a lot of stuff in children of men but this final battle scene is the a plus no one has ever done anything like this since uh kind of battle scene um i shouldn't say no one because uh, i think the uh, 1917 has like a a long is basically a, like one long shot but um took a while before we got another movie quite like that and even then i think i don't think that is i don't think that is well, I know that it's not just one long shot. It is, in fact, put together to make make it look like a long shot. But the point being, the technical mastery of Children of Men is, in its own way, an absolute A plus. So that's it for this episode, this particular installment of our um, Battlefield Cinema. Uh, I have a feeling this is going to go up late. I apologize for that. But again, i i do have a i do have a a boss that gives me money to do my other job, and very often that takes. And more often than not, that takes precedence. So I'm a little bit behind. So this will probably go up on Monday, which means that um, next week we'll have four episodes. Next week, It'll almost be a day. Maybe, I, maybe I will just make five episodes and do like a little wrap up or something. Um, so this will be coming out on Monday. Um, but in the meantime, we are. I am going to do a more, more straightforward review episodes of movies. I still have not decided yet on what, but I know I want to do. Um, I know I want to do a foreign war movie. Um, obviously just, a some regular old war movie, maybe one that I haven't seen before. And I also want to do a, a war documentary, um, something that we haven't talked about. We don't really don't do a lot of documentary talk anyway. And this seems like a pretty good opportunity to, um, to kind of bring out, uh, you know, to kind of attack it from a different angle, if you will. I think a war documentary would be pretty good. So, so maybe I'll put that up, uh, actually tomorrow I'll ask for some suggestions. If you have a war documentary in mind if there's a fa- favorite foreign war movie that uh you think i should check out and if there's just a you, you know, regular old war movie that you think i should check out we'll uh, I'll, I'll solicit those uh suggestions uh, on social media tomorrow um not even sure i'm telling you tomorrow because by the time you hear this i'll have already done it but um anyway uh thanks for downloading thanks for listening and we will catch you with more episodes the rest of this week thanks